Hello everyone, welcome to this uh, exciting event organized by the Festival of Ideas in Cambridge on the theme Reconsidering Religious Fundamentalism, a topic which has been on the research agenda for quite a few decades now and is constantly in the news. So we are delighted to um, have uh, three specialized speakers on the topic. Tobias Muller, who is a doctoral student at the Police Department in Cambridge, but is also a research fellow at the Wolf Institute, um, in task with uh, conducting research on this topic. He's here on my left. Um, Ed Kessler is the director and founder of the Wolf Institute here in Cambridge, which is devoted to the study of Jewish-Christian Jewish relations. Uh, I will talk about them later more in detail. And uh, uh, Professor Tim Knott, who is uh, um, the leader of uh, uh, a program of research in a, a very important center for in, in the UK for the Center of Issues Related to Radicalization, which is entitled the Center for Research and Evidence in Security Threat. But she's not a terrorologist, she's actually a specialist of religion <laughs> and societies. So I'll give some background later. Some uh, uh, just housekeeping. Uh, we are in St. John's College. You have seen, uh, you can see Mark the fire exits. If there is a fire or an alarm, you will have to come out, prefer preferably from the ground exit and go into the lawn uh, opposite the door where you entered. Um, so let me pass the microphone now to Tobias, whose uh, research specialism for his PhD is on uh, Muslims and the relation of state, and has been conducting research on uh, Muslim communities, but also policy relations and policy strategies uh, around Muslim communities in the UK and Germany. He's also a political theorist and has been teaching also at the University of Cambridge. And as I said, he's, he's a leading with uh, Ed, a research project aiming at understanding the attractiveness of fundamentalism particularly for young people, and how this is linked to contested gender roles and the frequently tense relation with the modern state. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Sarah, for the kind introduction. Um, thank you very much for you to making through the rain. Um, and it's uh, our pleasure to have so many of you here tonight. Um, thank you also very much for um, organizing this event for um, the support that we receive from the Festival of Ideas. So, what I would like to talk about in the next um, 15 minutes is first, what is it when we say religious fundamentalism that we mean, and how should we understand it, and how should we do research about it? So, I understand reconsidering in three different ways. The first one is what are the issues that arise when we do research about fundamentalism? Then I will briefly give you one empirical example how, how we understand these religious phenomena are linked to certain policies and certain ways how the state is dealing with religion. And third, I'll very briefly touch upon the research project that we're currently conducting that Sarah has already mentioned. Most of what I'm going to say is based on my PhD research where I have conducted 10 months of ethnographic fieldwork and around 120 interviews in diverse neighborhoods in Germany and the UK. Most of the people I've talked to do
do by no means fall into the category, however you want to call it, uh, fundamentalism or uh, strictly observant religion. However, um, some of the encounters that I have in the field inform very much what I'm going to say tonight. So, when we use fundamentalism as a concept, I think there are three main issues that arise that I'd like to talk about. The first one is an ethical issue. So very often when you term a group, call a group fundamentalist, this is understood as an um, anecdotally damnatory verb, something most people would consider to be highly problematic, very often linked to terrorism, to violence. At the same time, it is very often used as a term to do to name something that somehow opposes what we would kind of consider kind of liberal, secular, Western, with kind of all the problematic inclinations of these terms, but um, an othering kind of that is something that some form of religion that somehow doesn't fit. And the problem when we use this term as researchers is that we are demarcating a certain group to stand outside that um, alleged of common consensus or common order. So there are several problems with that. One, we might be wrong. Um, we might actually not know a lot about uh, the um, actual understandings of liberalism, of democracy, of being in the world of these groups. But also, fundamentalism has always thrived on distancing itself from something that is perceived as problematic. And that can be modernity, that can be the West, that can be liberal democracy, um, like the, all sorts of different developments and research has different opinions on that. So this standing outside is part of the narrative in a sense. So if we have societies, researchers claim they are standing outside, then we're actually perpetuating, potentially perpetuating that um, narrative. And at the same time, I think we make it a bit too easy for ourselves um, because in some of the conversations with people that I had, there was some really sensible, I find, um, and important criticism that they were voicing of, say, British or German society, that by no means only come from a standpoint of fundamentalism or strictly um, conservative uh, um, or strictly observant religion. Um, just on a side note, um, these terms very often um, do not, they, they all have uh, different histories, different meanings. I'll talk to you about that um, in a second. But I think there's a phenomenon out there um, that I would like to, um, to talk about when I say fundamentalism. But I'll come back to that in a second. So what are these critiques that these people have been telling me and the capital? So one um, critique um, has been a critique of religion, obviously, that society is secularized, they have left the true path, how a human being should be, they should be in relation to God. So general kind of criticism of the loss of religion. To that extent, you might say, well, this is understandable, of course, they're deeply religious people. The second one is more interesting. It's a socioeconomic critique. A lot of people have reprobated morality, or, or have claimed that morality is, um, in our societies, at a point where people do not think anymore what is good for human beings. Very often, people have claimed that our social and our economic system is designed in a way that it leaves a lot of people destitute and marginalized. 
that um, states and markets, in many regards, have, to use a phrase of Habermas, colonialized our life worlds. And that the only thing that counts is profit nowadays um, to the uh, detriment of human nature and of God's creation. So again, obviously, this is not a critique that only comes from these camps, but I think it's important to realize that this is a critique that they're mounting. And a third strand that I found striking is with regards to gender and sexuality. And that does not only come from a perspective of being conservative in kind of when it comes to social norms, but also um, criticizing the decline of the value of the family, care of elderly people. Like why are so many elderly people not with their families, but somewhere in homes and forgotten? This is something people tell me that they're really concerned about. And of course, there's also um, the way sexuality is being dealt with, and people point out things uh, like teenage pregnancy, like um, lack of support for single mothers, um, but even things like um, Me Too as signs of a society that um, has massive problems in the area of sexuality. Now, whether you find this criticism convincing or not, or whether you think these people are the ones that should analyze um, or should, should offer remedies, Leaving that question aside, where I think it's interesting to understand why fundamentalism is so attractive for people, we need to take the grievances that they address seriously. So, coming to the next issue, the issue of the origin of the term fundamentalism. It is a term, as many of you might know, that has emerged in the beginning of the 20th century in Protestant groups, in the United States, there has been a, um, several conferences, the publication of The Fundamentals in 1910. Um, and it was, at that time, a self-description of these groups, claiming we need to go back to what the scripture actually literally say and have to go against certain inventions in theology, particularly liberal theology. So that is the context of of origin of the term. And then some people have criticized the use of the term now for other religious groups as well, because they said, for instance, um, uh, Buddhists in the Sri Lankan war, some people have called fundamentalists, they do not actually want to return in any way back to the textual sources. They do not think that we need to retain literal truth in any text. So, the question is, can this concept travel? Does it make any sense? Or is it a Eurocentric um, concept that, again, takes Christianity as our role model for understanding any types of other religions? However, the argument has been made that the same could be said of the term religion. Religion is not a concept that is present just simply in all different cultures. And it is a concept coming from uh, Christianity as a Latin word and Concepts like uh, din in Arabic, or dharma in the Indian subcontinent, are similar, but they are different concepts. They describe something different. So the question always arises when we use uh, these concepts, where do they come from, and what do we mean when we use them for other contexts? That brings me to my third issue that I'd like to raise, the issue of defining fundamentalism. So there are two main ways to go about that. And one is working with so-called family resemblances concept um, from 
uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, basically claiming that we do not have a strict definition, everything that is either fulfilling all criteria or not is in, and everything that is not fulfilling all these criteria is out. Rather, we have a couple of patterns that connect these phenomena out there. So fundamentalism has been identified as radical conservatives by Tolkien Brackett, for instance, and conservative, in the, uh, for instance, when it comes to theology, but interestingly, radical when it comes to religious authority, because very often fundamentalist movements actually challenge traditional and conservative authority quite fundamentally. So it's important to not just take the term conservative, and I would argue against the notion of saying it's just mobilized conservatism. There is an aspect about um, being kind of yeah, radical or revolutionary when it comes to authority. As I said at the beginning, very often fundamentalism defines itself against uh, kind of the beleaguered, what Ruthven calls uh, beleaguered believers. So modernity's onslaught, the onslaught of liberalism, and against that um, you need to defend yourself. People have also claimed that it is about strategically working towards an apocalyptic vision, um, that is Carsten Fischer's term, drawing on a certain often fictitious uh, past that is about styling an ethical self. That's the point someone of Moody's making. So the family resemblances is one way. One other way is uh, to claim that there's actually a common origin in fundamentalisms, and that might be moder modernism, might be the Industrial Revolution, pauperism, very often uh, considered with kind of socioeconomic questions at the beginning of the 20th century. And this is important to bear in mind when we understand the attractiveness of fundamentalism today. So, to an empirical example, um, this is a quote from a senior civil servant in the Home Office. Just going to read it out to you. Um, and it is about government attempts to define what extremism is. Obviously, the two terms are very different and distinct, but I think it is important to understand it is about how does the government think about what is problematic about religious groups? What are the religious groups we don't want to engage with or condone? And there has been some debate going on, for instance, to include Islamophobia and misogyny as these uh, as markers of, um, of extremism. And this civil servant says, but the majority of these ideas um, will target Muslim communities and then will conveniently ignore other communities which hold the same values by some definitions. The Pope would be an extremist. Probably the Archbishop of Canterbury would be an extremist. Half the Tory MPs would be extremists. So it's, I think what is important here is to carve out when we take social values to be the marker whether something is considered to be either conceptually fundamentalist or politically um, extremist, whether there's not a, a double standard um, that has been employed. And one of the effects of that have been, for instance, that the British Home Office is no longer engaging, for instance, with the, the Muslim Council of Britain, which is by far the largest Muslim umbrella organization. And if you think about a government who tries to somehow engage with religion, but on the basis of they might have some groups that are extremist. Um, I think this has serious consequences to the ability of um, government to engage with uh, civil society institutions or with religions. Another example that this civil servant also pointed out, they're not 
engaging anymore with East London Mosque. And some of you might have been to Whitechapel. Um, it's probably one of the most kind of de developed and plural in terms of the services they offer places um, um, in possibly even in Europe. Even if you might not condone what they're doing, but um, I think it should give us a thing um, for what our governments are doing. So there is a criticism of this line of thinking, which is encapsulated in um, another quote from that very person that I'm going to um, present to you, and a criticism of uh, the government's approach based on that. So ignoring groups that you might find problematic, he says, if we ignore them, we make the problem worse. If we bring them in now, there's a phrase we used to use, um, and I'll just give you the phrase because that's what he told me as well. Um, you know, rather they were um, inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent um, pissing in, and this is a problematic approach. So this is kind of senior civil servants reflecting on engagement with these religious groups. So he claims that shutting the door, stand outside, because shutting the door, having them stand outside, just pushes them further and further and polarizes more and more, makes them more and more extreme. So the question is, of engagement, what are we, what are we doing if we conceptually, on the one hand, uh, say um, fundamentalism are those that hold these problematic illiberal views, and on the other hand, um, how that then translates um, into policy. Again, it's important to distinguish between fundamentalism and extremism. All right, so just very briefly, the last point um, on the research project that we're doing. I think because the interactions so often are about gender and sexuality, and interestingly, even conservative governments um, suddenly uh, discovering the feminists in themselves and uh, discovering their advocacy for gay rights, um, for instance, LGBTQ plus rights, um, in their engagement with uh, religious communities. And a lot of the people I've spoken to who define as very conservative um, people say, well, we held views that 30 years ago were absolutely mainstream in the Conservative Party, maybe even 10 years ago, but now we're kind of singled out as standing outside of um, liberal society. So the areas of, um, of contestation are, as I mentioned before, question of sexuality, but also the family, and particularly also of masculinity. Like, what does it mean nowadays in general society um, to be a man, but even more if you come from a background and a culture where, which has been patriarchically organized. So to what extent um, do people try to keep up patriarchy as their defining feature? Um, or to what extent are they also um, challenged by um, what is going on in society? And to um, end on that, uh, there, the call for papers for the conference, if you want to participate, is um, I'm still up. I have some copies here if you want to. You're very much invited to, to attend. So to finish up, I think we need to be careful what kind of terms we're employing when we study these phenomena and also in, in public discourse. Because every term that we're using, particularly fundamentalism, has a certain history. And it is certainly a contested history. And our understanding of these religious phenomena might have severe political implication as the empirical example um, discussed just showed. At the same time, ignoring religious groups because we consider some of the values that they 
hold that the practice that they have is problematic might actually strengthen exactly these values um, that we might find problematic from a position of liberal democracy. So what I think needs to be done and we need to pay much more attention is to how actually fundamentalist groups or strictly uh, um, observant religious groups deal with these questions in their everyday lives and also to not make the mistake and take an ideology as defining the everyday lives of the people because it might be that in their respective group, community, family, they might hold very um, different views than um, the overarching um, ideology does. So um, I thank you very much for attention for now and I'm looking very much forward to your thoughts and your questions and looking forward to the contributions of Adam Kim. Thank you. Thank you, Tobias. Next on this topic of reconsidering religious fundamentalism is uh, Dr. Ed Petzler, who also has an MBE from uh, uh, the Queen, uh, received in 2011. He is a fellow <coughs> of St. Edmund's College and the founding director of the, the um, Wolf Institute, which this year celebrates 20 years. Uh, I followed the birth and, and growth of the uh, Institute with great admiration in my academic life. And uh, this is a, a leading center, and Ed is actually a key media figure in commenting and writing academic pieces on uh, interfaith relations, specifically Christian, Jewish, and Muslim relations. The, he's the author of 12 books on uh, Judaism, on, uh, on Jesus, on Jewish-Christian relations, and Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And he was, he was also vice chair of uh, this very interesting report, um, which is the um, output of the uh, Commission on Religion and Belief in uh, British Public Life. We received a lot of media coverage. Uh, so the, this project uh, on um, fundamentalism, where Tobias is a key researcher, has been put together by Ed as um, principal investigator, who is going to talk us, to us about, a bit more about this project. Thank you. Thank you, thank, you, thank you very much. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to share with you the latest uh, fundamentalism, fundamentalist invention, which is a car powered not by petrol, but by faith. And to get the car going, all, all you need to do is say, thank God. And to slow down and stop, you just say, amen. <laughs> and so you can choose whichever fundamentalist leader you'd like. I'm going to be talking about the Jewish community in a moment, so choose the chief rabbi who tried to drive this car and he got in the car and he said thank god and the car went moving but it was going a bit slowly so he said thank god again and it went a bit faster it got to the top of the hill went down the other side and he said amen and nothing happened and he said amen with a bit of worry and still the car wouldn't slow down and ahead of him he saw this precipice and he screamed amen and the car screeched to a halt with two wheels over the edge and then he leant back and said, thank God. <laughs> I'd like to begin with a quote from a correspondent to this Commission on Religion and Belief in British Public Life who wrote to us these words. We are standing at a crossroads. What kind of society do we want? Will we be tribal and separate from one another or an integrated, inclusive, welcoming society? 
And his words actually lie behind not only the work of the commission, but also the creation of the Wolf Institute, which, as Sarah said, I founded 20 years ago. Now, in 1998, it was not obvious that fostering better understanding between religion and society through education was needed. But a combination of what one scholar has called the furious return of religion, as well as mass migration and the movement of people and ideas, has changed and continues to change communities and even countries. I'd like to begin by just setting the scene of religion and belief in the UK, uh, and there are some extra copies of the report if you'd like. Using the subtitle Community, Diversity and the Common Good, the Commission sought to stimulate a national debate about the place of religion and belief. And in January 2016, the report was published with 37 recommendations, uh, many of which have been implemented. Now, I begin my reflection with the Commission because it's a reminder, as is this evening's event, that religion has always been part of our national story. And in my view, religion and belief will continue to play a part in this story, even though the form that this will take cannot as yet be discerned. Yet it is increasingly clear that religious fundamentalism, taking account of Tobias's point about how we define religious fundamentalism, but it's clear <coughs> that religious fundamentalism has a role to play. Now, there are three striking trends in, UK, in the UK's rapidly changing religion and belief landscape. According to the Office of Nas for National Statistics in 2011, there had been a notable rise of those not affiliating to a religion, a decline of Christian affiliation, and a rise of affiliation with other religions. Now, this is consistent with the data from the British Social Attitude Survey contrasting data from 1983 and 2014, where again, the evidence speaks to an increase in non-religious affiliation, a decline specifically in Anglican affiliation, and an increase in non-Christian religious affiliation. Now looking at this in just a little bit of detail, one, an increase in the numbers with non-religious beliefs. Approximately half the population in the UK today describes itself as non-religious as compared with an eighth in England and a third in Scotland in 2001. That is a dramatic change. Two, a decline in Christian affiliation, belief, and practice. 30 years ago, two-thirds of the population identified as Christian. Today, that number is four in 10. And at the same time, there's been a shift away from the mainstream denominations and a growth in particular in evangelical and Pentecostal churches. That is, the face of Christianity is changing. For example, between 2005 and 2012, 700 new Pentecostal and Evangelical churches were founded in London alone. And three, increased religious diversity. 50 years ago, Judaism, or Jews, who numbered one in 150, were the largest non-Christian religious tradition in the UK. Now Jews are fourth behind Islam, which represents about 5% of the British population, Hinduism and Sikhism. Minority faiths now number about one in 10 of this population, have a younger age profile and are growing faster than Christians. So that's the context of the religion and belief landscape and the context of Tobias's work. Very different from the world context, I haven't really got time to 
which contrasts it to the world population, but 84% of the world's population identifies religious, compared to the, we are unusual. There are, for example, more Christians in China than members of the Communist Party. Muslims make up 50% of the Russian military. The Israeli population, pre-1967 borders, 25% are not Jewish. So there are significant issues in the world population compared, or not issues, contrast to the UK, but it's the UK that we must focus on. And this um, research project identifies three categories of religious fundamentalists. The first one I call the quiet fundamentalist. That is the person who just wants to live a pious life, studying, praying, without engaging in wider society. The second category we're proposing is a more assertive or louder fundamentalist. That is somebody who wants to bring you to his or her own position. And the third, the one that is most associated in wider society fundamentalists is the extremist. The loud, the violent, the extreme. Jewish fundamentalism in this country, which I'd like to move on to now, that is strictly observant Jews, tend to fall under the first category. In his book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Eric Kaufman argued that a religious takeover of the world is taking place through demography. While the secular population does not tend to replace itself through fertility, religious groups across many populations display fertility levels sufficient for vigorous growth. And this applies specifically to the British Jewish community. In 2010, about 60% of the British Jewish households were affiliated to a central orthodox or progressive synagogue. 25% were not affiliated to any synagogue and 15% were strictly orthodox. And according to the 2011 census, there are approximately 270,000 Jews in this country. And this, of course, is a self-definition. The number may be slightly larger, but certainly not more than 300,000. 15% makes about 40,000 strictly orthodox Jews. And the Jewish community is growing. But this growth hides a striking fact. Central orthodoxy, that is United Hebrew congregations, is declining significantly, perhaps 30% in 10 years between 2001 and 2011. Progressive Judaism, as the former liberal Judaism, is also declining, less so, perhaps 5% in the same period. So what, you might ask, is the cause of this overall increase? And the answer is, you won't be surprised to hear, strictly observant Jews. Doubled in number, percentage-wise, 100% mainly due to demographics. Jewish ultra-Orthodox or strictly Orthodox Jews tend to have very large families, six or seven children, twice as high as other minority communities, twice as high as the Muslim fertility rates, and of course low, for low mortality. The strictly observant Jewish community is more sticky. That is, 75% who were born strictly Orthodox remain strictly Orthodox, in comparison with 50% for the mainstream orthodox and progressive Judaism. And if you create a population pyramid, that is a figurative representation for statisticians to estimate the growth and decline of religion, it will show why mainstream Judaism in the UK is contracting and the strictly orthodox is growing because of the young people. In 2031, it's estimated that strictly orthodox Jews are expected to constitute about half of all Jewish children born. And um, looking further ahead to 2051, 
there will be, consequently, near parity between mainstream Judaism and strictly Orthodox Judaism amongst young adults, while the children of the strictly Orthodox will by then constitute a significant majority. So, in summary, strictly Orthodox Jews are expected to constitute a majority of the British Jewish population long before the end of the 21st century. Now, you might ask, are there any other factors that might, might impact on this trend? That the growth may change. Some may emigrate to Israel, for example. There may be others who uh, lead to an increased rejection of strictly orthodox life life, lifestyle. But the likelihood and the trend is clear. And Jewish communal leaders need to reflect on the implications, as do local governments and wider society, if this trend replicates trends in other faith communities. So I'd like to end by just touching on a couple of implications. One. As far as ultra-Orthodox or strictly Orthodox Jews are concerned, they, the Jew, the, those strictly Orthodox Jewish men are known to combine employment with study. Consequently, the majority of them tend to be poorer in terms of social economic criteria. Secondly, the presence of a high proportion of young people in the population has been linked by political scientists and demographers to social and political unrest and even growth in criminality due to the absence of attractive employment prospects. Young people, especially men, forming a large and impoverished group, traditionally see limited opportunities for income generation. But will there be social unrest? The strictly orthodox lifestyle differs from mainstream Judaism. Communal, co communal cohesiveness, early marriage, high levels of childbirth will reduce propensity for antisocial activities. But strictly orthodox Jewish leaders, as well as wider societies, need to reflect on this development in terms of policy and communal life. However insular, this is the third point, however insular the lifestyle of strictly orthodox Jews, there will be an increased likelihood of encounters with wider society, including encountering other faiths, which are unlikely to be similar to the, main, uh, main, uh, the mainstream encounters of today. So from a policy perspective, it's only by understanding the practices, customs, and beliefs and rituals of each religious fundamentalist group, not just Jews, that we will be able to influence their actions when encounters or collisions occur. And secondly, whilst fundamentalists are less obviously interested in interfaith relations and the work of the Wolf Institute, or getting to know their neighbors in a way that more, uh, more liberal faith and non-faith communities, there will be encounters and we will need to be prepared and informed and rethink our assumptions about religious fundamentalism. And I'm going to end by showing you a, a short clip from a BBC documentary, two-part documentary called The Promised Island. And this is an insight into the sorts of encounters that will be taking place increasingly between religious fundamentalists and wider society, in this case, uh, Jews. Now, I'm afraid the quality of the sound isn't as loud as we'd like it to be, um, but I hope you'll be able to hear it.
for the clarity of and the passion with which we have engaged on with the topic of fundamentalism. Now uh, we're passing the microphone to our third speaker, Professor Kim Knott, who is uh, based at Lancaster University. And uh, for people like us who work, uh, try to stride, you know, the boundaries between sociology, politics, religious studies, in attempting to unravel the challenges of today and issues related to violence, but from a sort of non-security perspective, the work the team does is really important and pioneering. Um, she has a very rich background in uh, initially in Hindu studies, and then she has specialized on space and people and politics relations. Uh, she has written on media representations of religion, the intersections between um, religion, migration, diasporas, and as I said earlier, one of her last in latest initiatives is this uh, project, which is part of the Center for uh, Research and Evidence on Security Threats. And her project is focused on the transmission of ideas, beliefs, and values, and their role in regulating behavior in families, schools, organizational contexts, and between peers. So we are looking forward to hearing from Kim now. Thank you very much. Um, uh, very, very nice to be here. Um, can you hear me all right? Okay, let me know if you can't. Um, so as uh, Sarah has said, uh, I really, these days, I try to work at the interface between um, the academy and government. So I work in this center for uh, research and evidence on security threats, which is actually funded by the security and intelligence agencies, but via the research councils. And this is in an effort to really get religion onto a wider public agenda. Um, because religion is seen by and large as a problem by the secular state, by uh, public servants, by policymakers, uh, and uh, by the wider public for some of the reasons that Ed has mentioned, not least of all that uh, religious people are 
actually now in a minority, only just, but in a minority in Britain today. Um, so religion does seem to be, is seen often as a problem. And so a part of our job, all of those of us who are sitting at the table, is to try to counter this and to help people to understand more about religion and its relevance in issues of public life. Now, in order to do this uh, in relation to our theme, fundamentalism and its relationship to uh, um, extremism and violence, I'm actually going to turn away from Britain to um, a historical case. Uh, and uh, the, there's a good reason to my mind for doing this, and that is because the group that I'm going to talk about became known for being the first religious group um, to, de to develop and deploy biological and chemical weapons. So this is the first religious group um, that used weapons of mass destruction, as a result of which it became known globally um, uh, and uh, it became um, a model, really, for thinking for to enable states to think through some of the problems of um, religious terrorism. Uh, and that group is a group called Om Shinrikyo, a Japanese new religion founded in the middle of the 1980s, which attacked the Tokyo underground with sarin gas in March 1995. And some of you. Some of you may know about this group anyway, but it may have come to your attention earlier this year because the, the, um, in July, the final, um, the final trials having been heard in, in Tokyo, uh, the, 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 la the remaining perpetrators of the violence, those who had planned and carried out the attacks in 1995, were executed. So, even this year, uh, the, the case of Om Shinrikyo has been on people's minds. Um, let me just have a look at the time. Um, there's, there's really four points I want to make about these groups, uh, this group, and I'll just briefly tell you what they are, and then I'll unpack these ideas a bit. One is that I want to talk about the problem of focusing too much on beliefs at the expense of practice. Another is uh, about the relationship of fundamentalism and extremism. I want to say something about the move to violence. And then I, like the others, I want to add by just saying a bit about how we might avoid such a situation in the future. So the first point is really about the problem of focusing too much on belief. Now, um, when we think about fundamentalism, if you look at most of the definitions, they are focused primarily on the beliefs that groups have, uh, and this idea of a strict literalism and so on, and going back to scripture and so on. Um, and I'm not saying that that isn't important, but it became very clear to me when I looked at the case of Om, I'm going to refer to it as Om, um, that belief isn't all there is. That's not the only thing we should think about. So, um, Om was a, started out as a meditation group in the 1980s. Uh, it was founded by somebody called Shoko Asahara, um, and he was influenced very much by Hindu thought, but also, of course, by Japanese Buddhist thought, particular es particularly esoteric Buddhism. Um, but as um, his um, 
investigation and experimentation with religion continued. He also became profoundly affected by Christian apocalypticism and by a kind of anxiety about the end times. Um, it started off as a very small meditation group. At one stage, it had as many as maybe 10,000 members, but most of those were very were supporters rather than members. And the core of people in Om Shinrikyo was perhaps only a few hundred. And that core was made up of people who really gave up, gave up everything to join that group. They left behind their families, they gave up their friendships, they gave up work. Uh, and they did so because, not just because they believed in a set of ideas um, that was uh, taught by the founder, but because they wanted to commit their lives to a, a particular form of practice. They believed that they could only perfect themselves and become pure themselves, and that they could only help others by practicing the ideas uh, of the founder. Uh, so it was that focus on practice and on training, as many of, the, of them called it, that was absolutely fundamental to them. And there was one, uh, one uh, young man who was interviewed after the attack said what attracted him to the movement was that they practiced what they preached. Uh, and so often uh, we forget that um, of strictly observant groups are not all about beliefs extreme beliefs and so on. They're about uh, everyday practice. They're about how people carry that, uh, those beliefs into their everyday lives and how they make sense of them, enact them, embody them, and live them out. So that's the first thing I want to mention. Uh, 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 members of OM actually saw themselves as practicing apocalypticism, practicing the for the end times. They believed very strongly in the prophecies of Nostradamus. They believed the end was nigh, and they believed they need believed they need to perfect themselves uh, in advance of that. Um, and that brings us to the question about um, extremism. Um, and as uh, Tobias said at the beginning, part of the difficulty with um, lab labeling a group like OM extremist is that it's a it's a very subjective label. Um, how do we decide when a, a, a set of beliefs or practices is extreme? And whose judgment is that? We, we heard actually somebody from the Home Office admitting how difficult that is. And that's a real problem that policymakers face, actually, that they've, la they've lumbered themselves, if you like, with this idea of extremism. And yet, uh, the, the, car, the carpet is constantly being pulled from under their feet. Uh, what is extremism? When is something extremist? Which groups are extremist and which are not? When should a group be prescribed or banned? These are profoundly difficult issues, and sometimes they're only known retrospectively. So it's only after a group has come to public attention, sometimes in, because they've committed, out, committed violent acts or for other reasons, it's only then that we start to think maybe we should have seen that that was an extremist group. Um, but, but often, as I think we've heard, there are clusters of ideas uh, that we label as extreme. Some of them we associate with conservatism, but as Tobias said, sometimes they may be radical in other ways. 
uh, apocalyptic thinking, as I have suggested, maybe austere ascetic practices in Om, for example, um, they, uh, they, they ex exposed themselves to really quite significant acts of torture, even, <coughs> uh, which they enacted upon one another and themselves as part of this uh, training process. Um, and in Om's case, uh, they, they clearly uh, prepared for uh, violent action, partly because they believed that they would be under attack by the outside world. So they believed they needed to build up their defenses uh, in, in case they were attacked by outsiders. As a group that had withdrawn from society, they very much felt under threat by uh, the outside world, and they felt it was beholden upon themselves to really build up their defenses. Of course, as we know, they then went on and acted offensively. But at least part of what, um, part of that, uh, their extreme behaviors were defensive, at least initially. Um, so that normative judgment about extreme beliefs and behaviors is a very difficult one to make. It's often one that we make retrospectively and subjectively. Um, and um, back as far as the, the mid-1970s, uh, a very well-known scholar of new religious movements called James Beckford, James Beckford wrote about cult controversies, and he said, but one of the things about cult controversies is not what they teach us about cults themselves, but what we learn about ourselves uh, because of those controversies. That those controversies expose us to what we value in society and what we think are normal uh, values, uh, uh, ideas and practices. And so often, I think one of the things we should ask ourselves about extremism is what are we learning from the application of that label. Do we learn more about ourselves than we do about the group involved? And then what about the move to violence? One of the key problems for policymakers and practitioners in the security field is the relationship between beliefs and action. Um, can we read off uh, the, the possibility of violent action from violent beliefs? So if a group has violent beliefs, if they believe uh, that the end of the world is nigh and that there's going to be an apocalypse, if they believe that violence is justified, if they have um, a sacred scripture which talks about violence, uh, are, are they going to become violent? Can we predict violence on the basis of these kind of beliefs or uh, statements in sacred texts? Well, we all know that that is not the case. Many, many more people hold these beliefs uh, and maybe practice according to them than actually go on to commit acts of violence. But the difficulty for security practitioners is in actually deciding who, if anyone, is, is going to uh, be the one to take those beliefs seriously and act on them. Um, and that this really poses a big question for psychologists, for sociologists, um, for uh, and for those actually with a specialism in um, security and terrorism. And we, in religious studies, we're not able to answer that either. Um, but, what, but what we do know is that, um, that it's often in particular social contexts um, that 
the move to violence occurs. So, for example, in these groups which want to withdraw from the world uh, and become very anxious about uh, the, the response of outsiders, um, in these kind of groups, um, the further they, they depart from uh, interaction with society, the less we are able to understand about what's actually taking place within those movements. The more they withdraw, the more the members of that cell, let's say, um, are cut off from other voices, from dissenting voices, from, com uh, from voices that want to contest the beliefs they hold or the practices that they carry out. They become more cut off from dissent. And maybe they also, within the group, it becomes more and more difficult um, to raise a dissenting voice yourself. Um, so in many of these groups, they're quite hierarchical, um, not, all, in, not in every case, but in many. Um, in some of these groups, it becomes difficult to speak out. In the case of OM, uh, secrecy became really embedded in the movement, so that those people who had carried out acts of violence or who had been involved in developing chemical and biological weapons, um, they uh, kept the secret to themselves because they knew that if they spoke out, somebody would, would be able to accuse them of having a role uh, in the perpetration of violence themselves. So everybody held the secret for everybody else. So secretly, secrecy became mutually embedded in, in that organization. Um, so it's often in the social context where uh, the, the move to violence may become more, um, more evident rather than in the beliefs and practices that the groups themselves hold. Um, and what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we really have to be very careful not to um, allow those groups to isolate themselves from uh, wider society, that we, um, as ordinary uh, neighbors, as, um, as public servants, as educationalists, we need to understand uh, the kind of beliefs and practices that are held in these kind of groups. We need to make sure that we contribute to the understanding of others um, and that we need, we need to continue to engage even when these groups don't want to engage with us because that is very often the case, that when a group becomes closed off from the world, they become closed off because they feel our hostility, they feel our criticism, um, they feel that they have no voice. And so it's, it's, um, it's contingent on us to keep open those channels of communication. Um, so staying in touch, understanding that it's about what people do as, what, as well as what they say, and understanding that violent beliefs aren't necessarily uh, a guide to who will act or when, uh, I think those are all important um, lessons for us as uh, scholars of religion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all the three speakers for an extremely stimulating and mind-opening 
um, presentation. Is there a question forthcoming? Okay, there is. Uh, first row, first row, and then behind and in the middle. People can start booking themselves by lifting this. Thank you. Uh, the person in the row behind, there was a hand up, and then uh, someone in the middle here. Thank you. Uh, the third question, there was someone in the middle row, yeah. Thank <laughs> you. 
Um, well, I can, uh, uh, let me just first um, respond, ooh, suddenly gone up, I can hear myself, uh, respond to the gentleman here. Um, yes, I am absolutely with you, there is, I don't want to make any distinction between religious and political fundamentalisms. I'm actually a professor of religious and secular studies in a department of politics, philosophy and religion. Um, uh, in which, in which we uh, we do indeed look at extreme political movements, um, um, and actually in uh, the policy setting, the the term that's often used is ideology rather than religion. So we're only using I'm using the word religion here um, because we're talking about religious fundamentalism. But I I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and uh, even though um, I should hand over to my colleagues, perhaps I would just say about on the integration question, um, I think if I think about the Japanese case, I, there are two case, two things I would say about the Japanese case. So that uh, what happened in the Om situation was that society, in a way, became less tolerant of that particular group and contributed to its marginalisation. So it wasn't just that OM withdrew from society, but it was really marginalised by the media, um, by, it, it, there was a, a political, it was involved in, a, in failing to gain any seats in a, in a parliamentary election on one occasion, and it became really demonised and marginalised. So um, why the society actually did have something to answer for in, in, the, in that particular case as well. It wasn't only that the group itself had benefited from society and then withdrawn from it. It was really forced into that marginal situation. And if I think back, I can give a case from about the 16th century in Japan. That's not my specialist area, but at the case of the hidden Christians. Uh, and they were not told, Christians were not tolerated in Japan at that time. And so Christianity went underground. So if you don't, if you have a public policy of uh, non-toleration, then groups, deep, uh, groups with deep commitments will find other ways to express those commitments, whether that is privately, um, you know, through uh, in, in uh, secure family settings or outside of the public domain, or whether it's through uh, public incursion, violent incursions or whatever. So I think we, we have to take care in thinking that, um, uh, you know, 
repression is in any way. I know you're not, because you're, you're arguing for integration, but you gave the case of Iran, and I rather think that, that you would find in Iran that religious, other religious groups are finding other ways to uh, maintain their beliefs uh, and commitments that we don't necessarily know about. Ed, and then you. Um, on the question of integration, this was the theme of the commission, and it, it called this it included the study of faith schools. And of course, the vast majority of faith schools are terrific faith schools. Church of England, Roman Catholic, Muslim Jewish faith. You know, and, and as I'm sure you know, you're nodding. The, the, the issue is how do we bring up our children to be familiar with others? And, and what the commission called for was that no faith school should be 100% of any one particular children should be meeting one another. Now when it comes to ultra-orthodox communities of whatever uh, religion, those communities, as Kim hints at, are more insular. They, they don't want to be integrated in the way that you understand integration. So what we've got to do is to engage with them in a more constructive way because they are growing in significant numbers and understand those rituals and customs and beliefs and practices in a way that we haven't up to date. Um, and that means better education. And it means a faith literacy, which a country which is incredibly illiterate about religion and belief, that is our country, uh, needs to step up in its religion and belief literacy. Yeah, thank you very much for your question. So first, on the differentiation between religion and non-religion, um, I would second the point of Kim and also emphasize it's not only about political ideas and beliefs, but also practices. There are political practices in these movements as well, the, point, the very point that Kim was making. With regards to kind of the, the situation of these people being able to enjoy the benefits of liberal society, I think in many regards that's true, but in many regards that's not true. I think we are failing a lot of communities and a lot of people. And I think um, what a lot of the people that I've been working with have been mentioning, for instance, is kind of the rampant racism that a lot of people are facing in their everyday lives. Institutional racism, institutional Islamophobia, institutional anti-Semitism. For instance, 50% of the Muslims in this country live in the 10% poorest area of this country. There's massive marginalization. There is classism. People have very, very different chances in the society. And I think these are grievances that are real. We cannot just assume we're all enjoying our liberal democratic rights equally because that's not the case. And I think as long as we don't take seriously these social divisions, these intersecting social divisions, we cannot expect, like, on, a, on an equal basis, so why are you not exactly like us? This is not what you propose, I know. But, like, I think we really need to, to, to take that seriously. Um, and with regards to the question of an engagement, which I think makes more sense to, to call it, because integration, um, very often people ask me, so I'm like a second form or third form generation uh, person here in this country, Muslim, whatever. Where should I integrate into? What is that thing that I should integrate? Where does that, like, am I not part of this very fabric of society? So I think we need to be very careful to claim what exactly, you know, they need to integrate because it's that very creative boundary in and of itself. At the same time, I couldn't agree more that we need this engagement. Just one instance, uh, many of you have heard of the prevent strategy, for instance, where a lot of people are, um, have the duty, everybody working in the public sector, to, prevent, uh, to, to report on instances of potential radicalization and extremism. And some people in the mosque told me, we are so cautious 
that nobody in our place says anything that is problematic. We don't want these people here anymore. They said whenever anybody would voice criticism even of US foreign policy, we'd say, don't come here anymore. Because we are fearful that the mosque is going to shut down and we're here to provide religious services. We don't want to have anything to do with that. So what happens if any type of criticism of society is shut out of the of places of engagement and of places where these beliefs also can be challenged? And that leads to the last point of the faith schools. I think there is a point to be made that as these faith schools, most of them have to follow the national curriculum. Actually, there is this necessary encounter. They need to learn a lot of things everybody in this country needs to learn. And they learn their religious beliefs and practices. And they need to kind of learn both at the same time. I think that creates sometimes a positive tension and an encounter um, that I think is also valuable um, and that we shouldn't lose, lose sight of. We realise we haven't answered the first question, so, but I think that's partly because we didn't exactly get it. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, because I think it's quite a big question, but I, d but I don't want us to ignore it either. So do you want to have another go? with that is you had a gentleman behind you who very properly pointed out that there are right and left-wing political movements that indeed have no conception of God but whose beliefs and practices might be very like those that we've been talking about. So um, I suppose from my point of view, although I think it's too, too hard a question and too big a question and maybe not quite the kind of question that we can answer here, but I, I would say that uh, I don't think God is the only issue or problem here. Um, I th because I think, as I, I hope as you've seen, that we've been able to range over a whole, a whole set of different issues around the things that are in scriptures, uh, the things, some of the things that people believe, some of the profound va values and commitments that they have, the things that they do, whether those are everyday things or whether those are unusual and sometimes violent acts, the kind of groups they belong to and the sort of social pressures that, are, that, 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 um, that, that, that contribute to those social groupings, but also the, the important social values that some of these groups have around family or around um, protecting human life and so on. So I think it's not just God, actually, that's involved here. And I, don't, I think, actually, if we took God out of this picture, we would still be left with an enormous amount on the table. Um, so I, I thank you for your question, but I, I, I just feel I, I, I'm not sure that God is really the only thing that's at issue here. I don't know if any of my colleagues want to add anything. Thank you, yeah. I, yeah. I think we, you know, running out of time, so to give more chance to other people also, because I think there was a question at the back, yes, and then please identify yourself, sorry, who you are. Yeah. 
um, there was someone in the back row, but I think uh, he left, yeah. No, no, he's, he's left. That man. Uh, it's Uh, someone um, yeah, with the gray jumper, and in the meantime, if a third person wants to book themselves, please raise your hand. So shall we, okay, maybe three would be God, maybe Ed, and maybe Zachary stays you, I don't know. Um, thank you for the point about favour with God. I mean, I think seeking God's favour is something that runs through certainly the Abrahamic faiths, but it also runs through the more liberal and progressive and orthodox dimensions as well as the fundamentalist dimension, I think. Um, the, the issue of the secular space, I mean, yes, we're, we're, we're in a, a secular university, um, the three of us, um, and of course we approach the study uh, from an academic and, and, and um, uh, perspective of the study. At the same time, each of us has experience of being part of those communities, I, I, I think, and engaging with those communities. Um, and my experience, certainly with strictly Orthodox Jews, um, is that with the respect that somebody mentioned at the end, and with some understanding and a willingness to be open, um, that there is a, 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 the possibility of engagement, there is that possibility of integration, perhaps not on my terms, um, but that area that sometimes we assume fundamentalist groups that offer no compromise, it's not my experience, um, that there are constantly compromises with wider society, um, but we don't necessarily, are able, we're not necessarily able to read that. So it's acknowledging what you're saying, but of course we're coming from that secular perspective or that, 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 uh, that academic rarefied perspective, but at the same time we have that experience of, um, of genuine engagement within those communities. And Tobias? Uh, yes, thank you very much. So, um, the question of methodology, I think, is really important. Um, 
couple of points. Like the first one, the position epistemologically, I would assume, is the one of um, methodological agnosticism that the study of religion also takes. Like I'm not making a judgment of whether religion is true or not in any ways, whether it's good or not in any ways. Um, what I'm interested in is mainly an interrogation of our own conceptual apparatus of when we deal with religion, what it is, and how also people who are in that space conceptualize themselves. So to take kind of a respectful, I think, um, an approach that takes the individual, the human being seriously, um, is never to claim to speak for them. I'm not claiming to speak for any of the people I'm working with. And try to provide a platform also for the concerns that the people have, have told me. And to take them really seriously as however um, they voice them. At the same time, of course, that's, um, there's no way that this is completely methodologically clean in any sense because of course we have normative judgments we have backgrounds kind of as a as whatever whether we are white christian middle class straight whatever it is like our what our background is that we of course bring into the field and every single person doing this research would bring different things and would get to different different um, um, um results so i think the answer can only be a diversity in the people conducting the research which we are very far from of course, but I think that is the only way um, to diversify the um, normative positions, but also the methodologies, and where we as researchers come from in order to, to really um, address that problematic. So pluralism, I think, here's the answer, and being reflective about where we come from and what our commitments are. So thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, quickly on this. Um, yes. Uh, my background is entirely in the study of religions, which is a secular discipline, so um, I, in a sense, I make no apology for that. But I, I think what I am trying to do is to stand in the space of um, policy makers and practitioners to try to understand what their questions are and to help to be a bridge between them and um, religious people who they understand very little about and so it is a kind of translation exercise um, and uh, being an uncommitted as a stance being uncommitted to a particular religious position as an academic stance is very useful in that context because I think once you're standing in a particular religious space of course, that has its uses too for some things, but it, me it makes it more difficult in a way to, to talk to policymakers and to, uh, to people who often have scientific backgrounds rather than backgrounds in the arts and humanities and social sciences who really don't necessarily get religion. And so that translation, the, the secular starting point can be a useful uh, one for uh, these kind of translation exercises. But I absolutely recognise that that's what it is. But I just want to say that I have not, I do not forget in that, in taking that stance, the, the, this notion, let's say, of the favour of God or favour with God, or the very real convictions that people have, the people that we've been talking about have, about God and about their relationship with God, and the unique contribution that they bring to a secular society in having those convictions. Because they are, those are radically different from the kind of secular positioning that many of us do adopt. And they raise 
they offer different ways of seeing the world um, that you know help to not only to make it more diverse and create a kind of celebration of diversity, but help us to see things in new ways and from different perspectives that otherwise we wouldn't do. And so I consider that to be something that's enormously valuable, actually, about having a range of different religious viewpoints, some strictly orthodox, some even extreme, if you like, uh, to engage <coughs> with. Thank you, that was fantastic. Before we thank the speakers, I would like to ask them if they can come up with just one keyword that has been sort of leading their thinking and their research around fundamentalism. So we start maybe with Tobias yeah. and then we'll <laughs> forward. Well, these are tasks that your supervisors can give you. So I would definitely say intersectionality. Um, just briefly, kind of, it's the coming together of these different types of social divisions that run in through these uh, understanding these phenomena. <laughs> I think expect more encounters with religious fundamentalisms and avoid them becoming collisions. Uh, I'm okay, I'll just end as I did on that last note, of, which is be challenged, but don't be put off by the challenge and be proactive in accepting the challenge. So thank you very much to the audience for participating and to the speakers.